You are connected, and you are listening to Specifically for Seniors, the podcast for those in the Remember When generation. Today's podcast is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and with video at Specifically for Seniors YouTube channel. Now, here's your host, Dr. Larry Barsh. It is an honor to introduce our guest on Specifically for Seniors today. Alexander Kasar is the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard University. An historian by training, he has specialized in the exploration of historical problems that have contemporary policy implications. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was named the best book in U.S. history by both the American Historical Association and the Historical Society. It was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Award. Professor Kesar chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections, and he writes frequently for the popular press about American politics and history. Professor Kesar's latest book entitled why Do We Still Have the Electoral College, is published by the Harvard University Press. Welcome to Specifically for Seniors, Alex. Well, thank you for inviting me, Larry, and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. With the most likely candidates for president this coming election, being two of the three oldest ever to hold office, do you find age a critical factor in the 2024 election? I think age is an important factor with respect to President Biden. I think that, I think that what's, one of the things that's interesting about this election, which is, I think, a very, in many respects, a very weird and unprecedented uh, election, at least as it's unfolding the president, at the present, um, is that there's very little focus on um, on 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 the former president's age, on Donald Trump's age, uh, because there are so many other features uh, of his experience and personality that 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 seem to take that seem to trump, if you will, uh, his age as as sources of concern. But I think that. Um, I certainly think, and the polling suggests this, that the electorate is not really pleased at having a choice between uh, two candidates uh, who are not in the full flush of youth or not in the bloom of sort of the you know the the central parts of their uh, of their careers, and who have both been around for a while, and I think that, I think that there's a kind of public fatigue with them. And age isn't the only factor that's going to be considered in the uh, election. Many pres- precedents are and will be broken. 
and let's try to put some of these in historical perspective if we can. We have an incumbent president who has faced controversy about whether his son may have promised favors to business associates. Let's not get into the right or wrong of anything, but has this happened before in our history? Yes, it has. I mean, I, I think that um, that there is a fairly long-standing tendency of relatives of the president trying to capitalize on the fact that they have a relative who's who's president. I mean, we saw this <coughs> with um, you know with with Bill Clinton's brother. Um, I think we saw something fairly similar with Jimmy Carter's brother. Um, his name was, I think, Billy Carter. Um, and, 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 you know, and they had, they had to be kind of squelched or moved to the sidelines. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think that this happens and it's not notably the responsibility of, you know, of the candidate. And, you know, they're also, I mean, you know, let's also be clear that corruption in or around, uh, the presidency is hardly a 21st century phenomenon. I mean, Warren Harding, who was president in the early 1920s, I mean, in effect was compelled to leave the presidency because because of corruption, not not for him personally, but too much corruption in his cabinet and the people around him. So I, I think this is a longstanding issue. And with all the divisiveness in this country, it becomes a preeminent problem. Well, it becomes um, the divisiveness seeks to capitalize on it. So that I think, for example, um, when when issues came up with Bill Clinton or with Jimmy Carter. The, the public response in general was to say, <clears throat> we know this isn't really the president's fault, but that this is the kind of thing that happens. They've got to do their best to insulate themselves in the office uh, for, from this, um, but it's no big deal. I think that in the current circumstances, not only is, I think there are two things that are distinctive. One is that the sheer divisiveness, the sheer uh, the temperature of our current politics is such that any claim like this uh, is going to be politicized and bandied about regardless of the substance. I mean, for example, I was just was reading one factoid that two Republican senators three months ago said that they had evidence that President Biden himself was implicated in, in some of his son's untoward financial transactions, but they have come forward with no evidence. Uh, you know, and it's been three months since then. I think the other dimension is uh, stranger uh, and and in its own way um, more psychologically complicated, which is that to my to my mind at least, or from what based on what I've read, there's no doubt that President Trump and his family have benefited financially in very substantial ways from his presidency. Um, you know, you left need to look no further than his hotel in Washington, where he required people to stay or his attempts to have to have 
sort of necessary meetings at his at, at a hotel that he owns uh, in Florida. Um, his son-in-law's financial uh, arrangements uh, with the Saudis after the president after the presidency, and yet it it seems to me that what the former president and his entourage have done is to try to deflect attention away from their own corruption by pointing at Biden and saying, at a minimum, he did it too. I mean, there's a kind of there's a kind of projection, you know, an accusation. Say you someone someone accuses you, or you're, it seems that you are guilty of a certain crime, and you say, no, 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 I didn't really do it. But look at the other guy. Have we ever faced an election so critical to American democracy? Well, it's hard to ignore the election of 1860, uh, which the, the results of which did, you know, catapult us into the Civil War. So I, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say it's without it's without precedent. Um, and uh, you know, that election was consequential. Re- Lincoln's victory. Uh, more or less uh, guaranteed, or at least yielded, the uh, secession of the South. Um, but that was not about democracy in the entire country. It was about who was going to be part of the country. Uh, a major issue, to be sure, but a somewhat different issue. With that aside, there, I, to my knowledge uh, as a historian, nothing comes close to the significance of this election. Uh, in terms of the maintenance of democratic institutions in the United States. Um, I mean, if indeed it turns out to be an election battle between the president and the former president, um, my own view is that if the former president uh, were to emerge uh, victorious um, in this election, um, it would almost certainly result in the dismantling of a number of democratic institutions or institutions designed to protect uh, democratic procedures and democratic processes. So I I do think that uh, the future of American democracy is at stake here. The former president has announced that if he's elected, as you mentioned, he's going to change the entire executive branch of government and make every agency responsible to the president. Has anyone ever attempted this before? No, I, the answer is no. I mean, I think all presidents want to make the executive branch to the extent that they can responsive to their own, uh, their own policy preferences and desires. Um, but it's also the case that a great deal of the executive branch has been set up um, in order to provide uh, insulation against that. The regulatory agencies, uh, you know, have career employees at, uh, at many different levels. Um, and, you know, in really every branch of the, of, of the, of the executive, you know, has that, uh, has that built in. Um, and that is a check on the whims of, a, of any particular president. You know, I think this brings us back to the accusations that were made during his presidency against the, quote, deep state, where the, the deep state seemed to be some sin, sinister uh, force 
um, operating, you know, outside of uh, of the world of elections or legitimacy. Uh, the deep state was in effect what in most countries would be called the civil service. It's the it's uh, it's the people who, uh, as as a as part of their careers, as their careers, hold jobs with particular expertise and particular know-how about how to get certain kinds of things accomplished uh, within the government. And the deep state includes a number of people with legal training who know what is legal, what is not legal, what is prohibited by ethical rules or other or other rules. Um, and that's what's being called the deep state. It's in fact not, to my mind, it's not a, a, a sinister dark force in American politics. It is a source of continuity in the conduct of policy. Um, and in many respects, a source of ongoing legitimacy uh, for the government itself. I suppose I can't skip over asking how Donald Trump compares to Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, well, I think that that Nixon shared something of a contempt for certain political norms. Um, obviously, what happened during, uh, you know, around Watergate and, you know, we, we um, and his, <clears throat> Nixon's willingness to, you know, hire extra legal uh, teams to do what, uh, you know, to carry out uh, missions that would guarantee his reelection interestingly and part of what in terms of overreactions and a kind of paranoia um, the fact is that you know Richard Nixon Richard Nixon was overwhelmingly likely to defeat George McGovern in 1972 anyway he didn't really need the plumbers uh, but there's a, a something of a, a paranoid streak about this Nixon also famously had an enemies list where he tried to use the IRS to punish people who were his uh, political enemies. But Nixon also had, I think, more years of experience in the world of policy um, and governance. Um, and he was embedded much more in a Republican Party um, that he did not completely dominate. He was the leading figure of for, you know, uh, you know quite a long time. I mean, it's, uh, I used to, I, I remember, I remember I, I'm trying to recall, recall the exact uh, names now, but in every presidential election uh, after 1948 and until 1976, in every presidential election except one, Nixon's name was on the ballot as the vice president or vice presidential or presidential candidate. You know, in 52, 56, 60, 68, and 72, he's a dominant figure. But he was also embedded in the party with a certain respect for politics. You know, we we have to remember if we think, for example, as we might, um, about the number of about uh, former President Trump's complaints about the 2020 election and saying that he really won. Um, the fact is, the 1960 election was really one that could have been challenged, um, but you know, by Nixon. Um, you know, there, 
there was some hanky-panky. I mean, there's probably hanky-panky on both sides, and it was sort of somewhat unclear. But uh, there was a there, there was potential reason to fight and challenge. But Nixon had you know has some sufficient conviction in the electoral apparatus or in, in the institutions that he chose not to do that. Um, and that's certainly not something which former President Trump, that's not a choice that former President Trump made. Trump's attacks on the press are more dangerous than, than we've seen before, I think. Is there any historical precedent uh, where a president, ha- I, I, I know presidents attack the press when they don't like something in it, but has there ever been anything so insidious? Well, I think that the, if one takes a long historical sweep, there, there are two different variables. One is the president and who's president and what they think, and the other is the nature of the press. Um, in the 19th century, and really uh, somewhat into the early decades of the 20th century, the press was uh, always overtly politicized, identifying with parties, identifying with factions of parties, identifying uh, with, with candidates. Um, and, uh, you know, but there was also, I mean, in, in terms of what we think of as the mainstream press, there were also multiple different sources. I mean, I, you know, I, I live near the city of Boston. The city of Boston uh, now has two newspapers, and that's been the case uh, for a number of decades. But in 1900, 1910, I think the city of Boston had something like 12 or 14 daily newspapers. Uh, And that was fairly typical of a lot of cities. So things were politicized in a kind of uh, rumble-tumble way, and uh, and the partisanship of the press was not disguised. Now, since World War II or even earlier, you know, we, we entered into an era of uh, of the mainstream press um, trying to adopt a purely professional, um, nonpartisan uh, stance. Now we know that no newspaper is ever completely nonpartisan, and there are leanings, and sometimes there are differences between editorial boards and the reporters, as is the case, for example, with the Wall Street Journal. Um, but there has never been attacks on the press during this modern era. Um, and attack, I mean, there it's really attacks on, on truth. Uh, it's attacks on evidence. It's attacks on, on, on logic, um, and trying to discredit institutions, which do most of the time, uh, try to make a fair-minded assessment of the facts and to just try to disc- discredit them. I've never seen anything, anything like that. I mean, it's a, uh, I, I do, for example, uh, I mean, I am not surprisingly given who I am. I, I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. Um, I re- and then, you know, and I watch CNN and MSNBC, but I do also watch Fox News, uh, uh, with some frequency, and it's pretty, it's very striking, uh, the different universes that are, that are portrayed. Um, and I think that the, the, the attacks on the press uh, are, are without precedent there. Look, it's, what's being attacked now in different parts of the country is not just the press, it's books. 
right? Can you assign books to kids? Uh, you know, I yesterday, you know, one school district in Florida is not allowed to assign the entire text of Romeo, of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, not to mention a lot of much more modern and political books, which have been effectively banned in Florida. Uh, so uh, the attacks on the press are are attacks on the notion that there is such a thing as truth and accuracy, um, and that's that's without precedent and pretty dangerous. You just don't see an attempted dismantling of the press in democracies. No, but you see it. Um, you see the dismantling of the press and the attacks on the press as kind of standard operating procedures in states or governments where which are sliding away from democracy into some form of authoritarian rule. I mean, you see that, for example, in Turkey uh, over the, over over recent decades, where I mean, yes, I mean Erdogan has been elected, and that's true. Um, but he has also gradually over decades eliminated uh, most of the free press. You see that in Hungary, uh, the same thing. This, uh, you know, the, the playbook of, uh, I mean, obviously it's true in, in, in Russia uh, after a brief period of opening, but the, two of the standard moves uh, in the, in the emergence of authoritarian rule are attacks on the press and not just verbal attacks. I mean, uh, basically pre preventing uh, parts of the press from operating uh, and operating freely and attacks on the judiciary. That's the second part of it. Um, and then the two become linked because if you have a captive judiciary, then the complaint, then lawsuits by the press saying they should have been closed are not going to be heard. Um, and those are those really do look. If you look comparatively, those are standard moves, and that is really what um, th those those are moves contemplated by um, the right wing of the Republican Party. What's the historical importance of an indicted former president running for re-election? Not not only to this country. But to the rest of the world, I, I um, it's a, it's an interestingly phrased question. Um, I mean, I think to the rest of the world, or to much of the rest of the world, it looks like one more sign that American democracy is in or near. Uh, I wouldn't say collapse, but is in difficulty. Um, I think it's also a sign of the disrespect of the judicial system, which has already become quite prominent in the United States, uh, as it is in some authoritarian countries. I mean, the fact is that, um, you know, if, if you back up into the ancient world of 30 or 40 years ago, you know, which you and I are old enough to remember, you know, as adults. Um, I think, you know, that, that's if someone had been indicted for a crime, you would have presumed that they would not run for office while under indictment, because you would presume 
that ju the judicial system had some measure of fairness and accuracy in the way it was proceeding. Now, an indictment is not a conviction. If somebody were indicted and then uh, found uh, to, to be not guilty, then they can run for office. And that has happened in the past, um, not for president, but it has happened for other offices. In this case, what seems to be happening is that uh, the presence of, of indictments, plural, does not seem to tarnish the candidate uh, or the candidacy um, in any way for a large percentage of the population. And I think that that has to mean that they, that it, that they are expressing um, a disrespect or a lack of confidence in the judicial system. And not only that, using it in their speeches and campaign advertisements. Absolutely. And there, there again, one sees, uh, you know, projection going on um, that uh, they're accusing, uh, you know, the Biden Justice Department of doing what, what, they, what they have said they would do if they were in power. Um, you know, attacking, uh, I mean, if you think of who has been running the, the special counsel investigation, Jack Smith, who seems to be as much of a straight arrow as you could find anywhere, and who by all accounts, if he ever had a, a party registration, it was as a Republican. And Merrick Garland, uh, the, the attorney general, who is also uh, you know, a complete straight arrow, very cautious uh, uh, attorney. So um, you know, to, to, to accuse that group of being engaged in partisan vendettas is really, uh, is really a stretch. And despite the indictments, lies, and threats, the Republicans remain staunchly supportive of Trump. Has, has this extreme loyalty ever occurred historically in a democracy? I hesitate to say it has never occurred. It's always hazardous to say, to say it has never occurred. Um, you know, there are, if you look comparatively and then countries which you think may or not, may not be democracies, but there are there are multiple examples of leading political figures who retain the passionate loyalty of a part of the population, no matter what they've done or what they've been accused of. Uh, I think, for example, of Juan Perón in, in Argentina, um, you know, who went from being a populist dissident to being elected to being maybe somewhat corrupt, et cetera, but uh, the Perona, I mean, Perona has been dead for decades, but the Perona's party is still, uh, you know, is still there. And certainly as long as he was alive or his wife was alive, um, there was, there was tremendous, uh, you know, personal loyalty there. Um, there was loyalty in Italy to Berlusconi and there still is, I mean, he is still, he still wields some power, even though uh, he's been out of office um, for, for a long time. So I, I think that there are examples of this kind of loyalty that, to our minds, is uh, being preserved um, 
beyond the limits of evidence, but you know, politics and political support is not a matter of, uh, it's a matter of emotions and psychology as well as rationality. People, uh, people support and remain loyal to candidates uh, for reasons that are not, that, that are other than simply checking the boxes about what policies they agree with uh, or not. There are emotional factors here, and I think they play, they play a large role. Now an easy question. Oh, good. Will American democracy survive? That, that is an easy question. Um, I think the, the best, the most honest answer I can give is that I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and the fact that I feel like I don't know um, bothers me. You know, I, I mean, uh, you know, y you and I grew up not having that question in mind for most of our lives um, and not, you know, and in not being really a question. I mean, even, um, you know, remember the electoral crisis of the 2000 election when Gore had won the popular vote and the dispute over 537 votes in Florida. I mean, but we didn't think that democracy would, would, would teeter, you know, at that point. Um, Right now, I don't, I, I honestly, um, I honestly do not know if American democracy will survive. Um, the, I think that we have a problem in that we have a two-party system. We've had a longstanding two-party system, which itself, frankly, I think is part of the problem, but we have a two-party system and one of the parties I think no longer believes in or adheres to the institutions of American democracy. Um, I, I don't say that about everybody uh, in the Republican Party, but clearly there's a there's a large enough uh, segment of that party that um, you know that, that I think that that uh, you know that that the future of American democracy does hang in the balance. I mean, I think, you know, I think if, reflecting on this and free associating a little bit, if we think about the immediate aftermath of what happened on January 6, 2020, um, there, was, there was a moment when numerous leaders of the Republican Party um, including the current Speaker of the House and the current uh, sort of Republican leader uh, in the Senate and many others stood up and said, this has gone too far. We can't take this. You know, uh, members of the cabinet resigned. I mean, it was a way of saying, you know, this is beyond the limits. We, we need, we will stick with protecting the institutions rather than with protecting the person. Um, and that looked to me like a moment when the survival of American democracy was being reassured and was being, you know, and, and the prospects were being strengthened. And then, as you know, and listeners know, within a period of about three or four weeks, there was a rapid flight from precisely those stances by precisely those leaders, uh, with the exception of people like Liz Cheney. Um, and I, I think that was a moment when the Republic, leadership of the Republican Party was saying loyalty to 
to Mr. Trump and the preservation of our own political careers um, is more important than the preservation of democratic institutions. And, uh, and I think that remains where we are today. I mentioned your books at the start, The Right to Vote and Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College. Where are they available for listeners who might be interested? Um, you can certainly, uh, I, I, pre I appreciate this, that they should be pretty widely available. They're both in paperback now. Um, Amazon carries them. Uh, so does, uh, my God, I'm forgetting the name. The, 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 there's a website of books that's something which I prefer to Amazon. I, it's a sort of network of independent bookstores. Um, and I don't know why the precise title of the website is escaping me, but if you were to do a Google search for independent bookstores or books.com or something, uh, you would find it. Did we miss anything about challenges this country is facing politically? Anything else you'd like to comment on? I guess the one... I guess one thing which needs to be added into the backdrop, and I'm not quite sure how it plays out, is that this drama taking place within the American political world, or maybe there are a couple of things that, that need to be mentioned here. One is that we haven't mentioned race, and race obviously is playing a role uh, in what's going on in domestic politics in the United States. and. Uh, we can't back away from recognizing that um, it's both you know, race and reactions to racial issues um, and ethnic issues. And that's uh, that is part of the story. The other dimension which I had wanted to allude to is that uh, we inhabit the, we, the United States, uh, we the people of the United States inhabit a changing international world. This is not uh, simply the post-World War II world. It's not the Cold War. People have talked about it as Cold War 2.0. I'm not quite sure there's a 2.0, but I'm uh, I'm not sure that the that the global arena is stable or that there is, you know, as universal uh, sympathy with democratic institutions as there may once have been. Um, so I think that... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I think that this is all playing out in a world where in terms of social, ethnic and international divisions, uh, it's a fairly hazardous time. And um, and, and we it, to the extent that, we, you know, any of us want to take action to try to, uh, to try to ameliorate things in the United States, we have to recognize that the global climate makes that kind of amelioration all the more urgent. Alex, thank you. This was an honor, a privilege, and an education. Thanks for being on specifically for seniors. Well, I, I, again, it's uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure, really, and an honor for me. And as as a senior myself, I'm uh, particularly interested in addressing an audience of my peers. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you.
If you found this podcast interesting, fun, or helpful, tell your friends and family and click on the follow or subscribe button. We'll let you know when new episodes are available. You've been listening to Specifically for Seniors. We'll talk more next time. Stay connected.